0: Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 12 this morning we're going to be reading and then studying together verses 12 through the first half of verse 36 So John 12 12 to 36 There we have John Right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness, to testify. Uh, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing, look. The world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. And so the crowd answered Him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, the very word of God about the Lord Jesus, about his impending death, the death that he has now died, the salvation that he was going to accomplish, that he has now accomplished. And I pray that every single heart in attendance this morning would either be converted by the sight of it, are just extremely encouraged and overjoyed by the truth of this grace. We ask it for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes, we want life to slow down. This past week, I realized it's already been two months since my birthday. I am a sixth of the way through my 42nd year, I think. That's right. The years are just kind of flying by at this point. So I just want to slow things down a little bit. That's why we take pictures. Uh, It's why we record things, get them on our phones, so we can capture and then study a moment in time as long as we want. We can relive it step our way through it at our own pace. We can literally pause that portion of time, or we can still frame this portion of time in order to savor every millisecond, right? Every captive angle of whatever moment it is that we have captured. Sometimes, we just really want life to slow down. Sometimes, as I imagine you know, we really need life to slow down. It's not just a desire, it's a desperation issue. We need life to slow down. Or, to hurry us to our passage, God at least thought it eternity critical for all people in the world, or in history, to slow down one life in particular. And so in this gospel, one half of it spans a few years of time, while the last half of it Spans little more than one week of time of the life of Jesus. The pace now slows considerably because there's never been in the history of the world a more vital moment in time. Now, there have been some seriously momentous weeks in the history of the world but nothing close to the week when redemption was accomplished. And So John takes special care by the help of God to give us truly the most scrupulous record of the most significant events related to our most desperate need. God wants us all to consider long and well what's called the passion of Christ. His words, His acts, the moments nearest his death, and all that gloriously follows from his death. And it will take us all the way to next summer. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Okay, what better content to slowly absorb together than the things that were most pressing on Jesus as he goes to save our souls? And so let's start out. Just coming to our text and considering as I think God desires four things in relationship to the cross of Christ. In other words, what John began for us a week ago in framing the death of Jesus for us, I think he just means to continue in our verses this morning. So, first up in verses 12 through 19, let's just stop and consider the cross and the triumphant king. The cross and the triumphant king, which if you're not a Christian, doesn't make a lick of sense. And if you are a Christian, probably only makes sense because you've heard and loved that combination, the cross and the triumph of Christ, for so very long. So perhaps it's good for us to hear with refreshed ears, alerted ears, that being crucified and winning aren't exactly peanut butter and jelly. They don't exactly go together. They don't exactly go hand in hand, at least certainly not to our natural minds as these verses are going to show us. Nevertheless, While the preceding context of these verses concerned the death of Jesus and anointing for the burial of Jesus, this episode is typically called what? The triumphal entry. So here we are, needing to ask, in what sense can we call the start of any march to the cross a triumphal entry? John's answer seems to be that it's triumphal first, and that it fulfills the biblical typecast for the everlasting king of Israel. The death of Jesus, in other words, is triumphant in that it proves him to be the Christ laid out for the world by God in the Bible, in Scripture. He is winning because he's going to the cross as it is written. But further then, the death of Jesus is also triumphant and that his death will not finally defeat him. And here then, seeing the cross properly demands the hindsight of the empty tomb. We know later on in the story that Jesus is going to what? He's going to rise from the dead. It is hardly triumphant to consider the cross or to consider Christ crucified full stop but to be crucified in connection with the saving promises of God and then be raised from that death now we have the triumph of God for us right then we have Christ and his cross Proven to be for us all that they were said to be in the word of God. Now, I don't think that is at all obvious yet to this ecstatic crowd in our passage. Their ecstasy is related, as it says in verses 17 and 18, to the fact that Jesus had raised a person from the dead, Lazarus. A lot of folks had gone out, If you remember this, from... A week ago or two weeks ago, a lot of folks had gone out to see both of them, Jesus and Lazarus, and this is the next day. You see that in verse 12. So you've got those folks, those folks that have seen this and borne witness to this, testifying still to this Passover crowd about what Jesus had done back then, which no doubt stirs up any kind of latent messianic zeal. If it was dormant, now it's all stirred up. And then on the back of it, they hear that this Jesus is now on his way into the city of God and it's off to find a good palm branch to celebrate his entry. Thing is, again, it can hardly be the case that they do this with a proper notion of God's actual Christ. In verse 16, John says, Even the disciples, himself included, did not then understand, did not at first understand what was happening right before their very eyes. So how could the crowds understand what was going on? The answer is they, they couldn't understand that. They have no mind at all to the Lamb upon His throne, which I mean the cross, and yet they're ready to crown Him with many crowns. Why? Why are they ready to do that? Well, if we didn't know the crowd, we'll turn against Jesus. I think we could give a more charitable take about their simple delight in what they did know about him, but in the end, because we know the end, most of them are lining the way with palm branches and praises because, we need to be careful now, because they think Jesus is the answer to their more cultural conceptions of Christ. Here is the son of David come to set us Israelites free from Rome. Divine victory by way of willful submission to death on a Roman cross. That is, the redeeming work of the biblical Christ is the farthest thing here from anybody's mind. Even as they cry, Hosanna! (laughs) In verse 13, save us, we pray. That's what Hosanna is. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. No one there is thinking, you know what? (laughs) I bet he's come to save us from our sins and reconcile us to God. No one's thinking he's come to bless us by becoming a curse for us on a cross. No one's thinking, you know what? The crucified one is the blessed one of God. No one's thinking that. That's front and center for no one except Jesus. And yet, even though that's not in their minds, have all the crowns, Jesus. They all belong to you. So dear ones, why do you bless Jesus? Why do you praise Jesus? Why do you give Him so many crowns? It's apparently possible to do that while also being ignorant of Him. Do we know the Christ we aim to crown? I bet, I bet that our praise will grow truer and higher the more and better we know Jesus. And so, is our praise captive to cultural rather than biblical conceptions of Jesus? Right? From where are we gathering our notions about Him? Are we getting them from the Bible? Are we getting them from those who know Him? Are we getting them from those who know Him better than we do? Or... Are we crowning him, for instance, because to us he's a national symbol of hope akin to the bald eagle? Or because we think him a merely political deliverer? A beautiful example of a bygone morality? An inspirer of universal but Bible-ignoring love? A liberator from all of the oppressive structures of the institutional church and whatnot? Right? Oh, Hosanna! (laughs) Blessed is that Christ. Have all of our crowns. Jesus? We need to take care to offer Jesus the praise that really is due His actual name. His actual person. His actual work. Okay? Which, as John sees it, must always drive us to the whole Bible in light of the empty tomb. Jesus does truly fulfill Psalm 118, which is quoted there in our verse 13. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And beyond the crowd's Imaginations, Jesus really does fulfill the intentionally conflated quote in verse 14. It's probably Isaiah 43, 1, but certainly also Zechariah 9, 9, which Jonathan read for us at the beginning. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. And everybody says, Amen, Hosanna, he's coming. But wait for it, what's he sitting on? A warhorse? no. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus has not come, as they expected, to author terms of deliverance and defeat between them and Rome. Jesus has come, as Scripture foretold, to author terms of deliverance for sinners by being crushed in our place on that Roman cross. He's not come as this mighty warrior king. We can get behind that. That's not how he came at first. He came as the almighty shepherd king. He's come in no less than infinite gentility and humility even as the Lamb of God, to save His sheep from the hell our sins deserve and for the life that He alone can give to His people. Listen, He is going to come in justice. But then, in our passage, at this moment, He was coming to justify God in the salvation of guilty sinners. But, as John says in verse 16, again... It took the empty tomb. It took the resurrection. It took the ascension. It took the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for even the disciples to have that God given grasp of the biblical truth about the whole affair. Beloved, I want you to hear this morning. Listen to this. Maybe we've forgotten this. If you count in your heart, The cross of Christ, the wisdom and power of God, as well as the fountain of all your hope and all your peace and all your joy, that is a miracle of sovereign grace. A miracle. You've been raised from the dead. We see in the text how alien, how foreign that is to even the most advantaged hearts. So long as the Spirit of Christ and His regenerating work is withheld. Without that work, Christ crucified cannot possibly be the triumph of God for our sin-devastated souls. But by it, by this gift of the glorified Jesus, We see it all as salvation's only point of entry. If you've seen that, you've experienced the resurrection power of Jesus. And if you've experienced the resurrection power of Jesus, you look at verses 17 and 18 now, it should be the unavoidable activity of our lives to testify to all Jesus died, but He lives, and also Jesus happens to be able now to raise people from the dead. Come and see. You see verse 19, that's all the Pharisees' concern. Their concern. Oh, that this church, would be such a visible and magnetic testimony to the resurrection power of the risen Lord that any opponent, spiritual or otherwise, would just be deflated (laughs) and defeated. What's the use? Clearly nothing we do can stop his advances. Look, the whole world is going after him. even as that pushes us ahead in the passage. Won't you just pray with me from day to day that we'd wield that kind of witness to Jesus? One that overwhelms all opposition, even as it draws upon all the world. Here's a living people. Here's a living people. Come and see. Christ is risen. Believe in Him. It'll take knowing our union with the risen Christ and what that should quicken in our lives to be faithful. And so we come in verses 20 to 26 to consider the cross and the global harvest. What well, the Pharisees overstated in the moment, right, it's just a little band of people saying Hosanna. The whole world, right? What well, the Pharisees overstated in the moment actually wasn't an overstatement in the end we see verse 20 and so on, how among the Jewish gathering for Passover there were, quote, some Greeks. Now that is an amazing thing. That is an amazing thing to think at this time that one way or another the knowledge of Jesus had already begun to spread out among the nations. The one known in the Bible as the desire of nations suddenly has the nations desiring him. At the same time, that his own ethnic people are pushing to have him removed from the face of the earth. we got to kill him. And so this amazing thing combined with that awful thing becomes a triggering thing for Jesus. It acts as like a, a green light for him to proceed full on into the cross. Do you see how their desire to see him instantly sets off his sort of internal clock and fills his mind with nothing but the worldwide fruitfulness of the cross? Beloved, it is incredible to think that the cross had an appointment or that Jesus had an appointment with the cross a certain time in history. To know that Christ was the Lamb, as it were, who was slain before the foundation of the world how from all eternity God ordained the work of Christ to our salvation and how He gave that work an hour in time. And now just think on it. Think on it. That infinitely vital and meaningful hour has come. Jesus says, verse 23, for the Son of Man to be defeated. No. glorified Hmm. talk about moments in time that we really need to capture and talk about another unexpected twist on the cross Jesus's death I want us to hear is his glory It's the divine Lord doing the work, set aside for Him, which only He could ever accomplish. To in any way strip Jesus of that, most often by way of our own self-righteousness, is to rob Jesus of His glory as the eternal Savior of the world of sinners. There's a reason, right? When Peter would have kept Jesus back from the cross, that Jesus rebuked Peter as Satan and said, get out of my way. There's a reason why Paul, in another vein, urges us, the church, to boast in nothing save Christ and Him what? crucified, And it's not because we can save ourselves. It's because that is Christ's glory. And to him alone then, that glory belongs. But So, see how Jesus speaks of it starting in verse 24. Note, note this. He does not go and sit down with the Greeks. <laughs> Let me tell you about the cross. Instead, he just begins to teach. His disciples about the cross. And I think, I think, things required for reaching all the peoples of the world, those Greeks included, with the gospel. So, he gives his cross a parable. He says in verse 24, if you look there, truly, truly, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, what does it do? It bears much fruit. So again, he's trying to frame the way there to think about his death on the cross. His death on the cross is not a miscarriage of his mission. It will not have been a finally fruitless venture. Quite to the contrary, like a seed that's planted in the earth that by dying multiplies its life, the death and burial of Jesus will secure and then be the source of life for a multiplicity of souls. It will bear much fruit even to countless millions. Countless millions. Go read Revelation 7. And mark it then. Mark it the death of Jesus will not fail. What is necessary for producing the great global harvest will absolutely be achieved. His death, that is, will be effective in accomplishing its purpose. It is not a possibility in the mind of Jesus, that his death could ever be in vain. He will die, and it will bear much fruit, he says. He will be glorified. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. The harvest, the church even, will be and has been purchased by the blood of Christ. And so that all that's essential for the salvation of that innumerable multitude has most definitely been obtained by Jesus already at the cross. So, we might think there's nothing left for us to do for the conversion of the nations. Absolutely incorrect. We're called, verses 25 and 26, actually, to follow in the self-sacrificial footsteps of Jesus. do You see how he moves in these verses from his once-for-all sacrifice to the basic rule of daily discipleship? And how that's connected then to the global harvest that his death is sure to bear out? Dear ones, listen. If you, have come alive by the death of Christ, your life should be radically different than it was before. Before you loved yourself to death. Before you lived for your best life now. Before your devotion was to you. You know why? Because you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead to God. You had no care at all to use your life for the glory of Christ. That was completely out of sight and therefore completely out of mind. But all that changed, did it not, when the blood of Christ was, at a moment in time, applied to your heart. We need to get this. It is the great paradigm of the Christian life that resurrected people will die daily, okay? Jesus died to make you and me living what? Sacrifices. Living sacrifices. At the same time Jesus welcomes us to the world to come and invites us here to live for the world to come, to live for that commendation of God, he also sets so many crosses right in front of us and says, if you would serve me, you must follow me. Where's he going? To The cross. And then the Glory. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says this, Jesus died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you hear the radical change there? Our lives no longer center on you and me. They center on Jesus and His glory. They center on His his service and His fame so that even if it costs us our lives, we are ready to embrace it. We are ready to resolve to live for Him. Here's the point. Here's the point. Self-centeredness will stifle what Christ-centeredness in flames and that is the mobilizing concern for the conversion of the nations if we love our lives more than the glory of Christ and the good of souls we will not lay down our lives We can say this, where there is a lack of evangelism, a lack of urgency when it comes to missions, there is probably a whole lot of worldliness and self-love going on. We've lost sight of a major point of redeeming, resurrecting grace towards us, and that is that we preeminently elevate being spent doing His bidding throughout the world. When have we last done that? Did we do that this week? Any bidding at all for our Lord Jesus? When have we last turned off our favorite television show to pray for lost souls instead? When did we last use a rest day to seek the rest of souls in Jesus? When did we last put off parental rage to to gently offer the gospel to unruly children? Or pushed back a deadline to spend time sharing life with a dead soul? When have we last taken an opportunity, as provided Andrew and Philip in our passage, to bring the nations to Jesus? They didn't know them. Beloved, his cross has won a global harvest. And from day to day then, you and I, we're supposed to be all about both of those things, the global harvest and the cross it takes to bring that about. And it's perhaps to then steady us right there. We hear cross, and we're just like, ah, the cross. To steady us right there, so that we actually get up under it and bear it. That we come in verses 27 and 33 to consider the cross and the Father's voice that attends it. And there in verse 27, we we instantly enter unfathomable depths. This is John's Gethsemane moment. Christ is not unfeeling about the cross. What does he say here? He goes right, right into it. Now is my soul troubled. Doubtless, beloved, the cross is a trouble. It is a trouble that no soul but Christ's can bear and endure and satisfy. He is not here speaking of the impending pains of the cross upon His body. He is here speaking of the impending pains upon His soul. There, on the cross, His perfect soul is going to undergo the full import of whatever it is to experience the almighty wrath of God against our sins. Only the Son of God can know what kind of agony that is. But we know from how He proceeds, whatever that agony is, it is enough to make the sturdiest soul even the soul of Messiah want to be spared it. But are you ready for something incredible? He does not want to be spared that more than he wanted us to be spared that to the glory of God. Oh man. What shall I say? Father, Save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do we understand what was just read us? In that preposition, but... We hear the resolve of Christ to press ahead into the cross because He considers our salvation to the glory of God worth the hell it would take to deliver on it. That's incredible! Don't we love Jesus? Oh my! How can anyone not To glorify God by the way of the cross is why Christ came into the world. And just as soon as He expresses His readiness to bear our hells, what love! The Father's voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And I say, what love, for two reasons. One, what a word of affirmation for Jesus before as part of the cross the Father goes silent. It must have been of incalculable support to Jesus in that hour to hear His Father say, Here, I will glorify it again. But two, as Jesus interprets it, what a word of assurance about the cross of Christ for any who will have it. And I put it that way because at the same time Jesus says the voice was for their sake, John tells us no one in the crowd apparently hearing that voice could make ends meet. So how is it for them? (laughs) Some said it thundered and others said he's heard from an angel. But nobody except Jesus intelligibly discerned the word of God here. Why is that? Well, again, I, I think it has to do in part with their spiritual condition and in part that God intended His Son perfectly perceptive as He is to be the final mediator of the voice of God to sinful and spiritually imperceptive people. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to listen to Jesus. He says, verse 30, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. And then he goes on to interpret the Father's expressed will, listen, to be glorified in Christ crucified. To be glorified in Christ crucified. Crucified. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, by which verse 33, again he means the cross, I will draw all people to myself. And so what's he doing? Again, he is alighting what the cross is. Basically, it's backwards from all that people might think. If they think that the cross is a disqualifying judgment of Jesus, it is instead God's revealing judgment about the world. It's a judgment of the world. In no other God-awful action in the history of the world is the true character of the world so vividly revealed than in the cross of Jesus. Humanity condemns itself in its treatment of the Son of God. The cross irrefutably says, guess what? We are a world of sinners in need, desperate need of salvation. Friends, God is not glorified in the cross because the wretch, Jesus, is getting what he deserved, but because in Jesus, we wretches may be spared what we deserve and receive instead the salvation that Jesus there achieved. And we're not done. Not only is the cross a judgment not of Jesus but of the world, the cross is a defeat not of Jesus but of the ruler of this world, the devil. Listen. When Jesus was cast out to the cross, Satan was cast out by the cross. Isn't that glorious? I bet that bothered Satan just a little bit. You know he had to love that to discover straight against his pure pride that what he thought was the instrument of his victory over Jesus, was in fact designed by God to his defeat. The cross is how Jesus would bruise his heel in crushing the serpent's head. It was the official coronation of Christ over the ruler of this world. The throne of the cross relegated Satan's throne to a prison in exile. It proved his power to hold God's people captive, powerless in the end. Satan's power is not the preeminent power in the universe. Christ's power is the preeminent power in the universe. And the cross of all things is the proof of that reality. Somebody should say amen. Thank you. Thank you. That's why, as Jesus says, He, when He is lifted up, will draw all people to Myself. The cross of Christ will prove to be the power of God for setting any captive to sin, Satan, death, and hell free. I saw that. You said it. Say it louder. There you go. Amen. That's what God means by and I will glorify it again." He means that by the cross He'll put the world on notice about itself and its ruler. He'll make it plain as the death of Christ that for our universal problem there is a universal solution. There is a savior for sinners. Jesus wants us all to know that the cross is not a defeat, it's his victory. It's not a strike against him. It's God's glory being carried out in him. Jesus is God's Christ. Which brings us to the close and to the cross and the great question. The crowd we see in verse 34 responds to this. These folks are not uninformed folks. They're not irreligious folks. They've sat under preaching. They've heard from the Bible that Christ remains forever. Only now they've heard from that Christ that it will not play out as they thought it was going to. His abiding forever demands first the cross, a lifting up. And that doesn't, it doesn't jive. It doesn't it doesn't match what they've been taught it doesn't square with their expectations for the christ remember all those crowns that they're casting at the beginning and so they ask the great question the question friend that maybe you've come to ask a time or 2000 before who is this guy who is this son of man who is this great judge And yet, at the same time, this great Savior of the world. Can you give us a name, Jesus? What irony. (laughs) Jesus says, I'll give you verses 35 and 36. You need to listen well. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Another way to say that is they're lost. While you have the light, believe in the light. There it is. Believe in the light and you will become children of light. You see what Jesus does. He discerns in the question a blindness that should no longer be there at this point in the story. Jesus is plainly the Christ of God. The question is, is that what they really want? Do they want that Christ? The question is not great because it's a good question. <laughs> the question is great because it gets to something eternally critical. They don't know the Christ they need. You see, they don't know the Christ of Scripture. They don't know the Christ of the Gospel. They do not at all know the Christ of the cross. And so Jesus' answer is really a kind of warning to them. He's saying, trust in Me. Trust what I'm saying to you. Believe in Me while you still can. Believe in Me. Because if you don't, you risk being consumed by the darkness already keeping you at bay. And so, friend, listen. You will lose the light that you do not put to good use. So use it this morning. Christ crucified is the wisdom and power of God for all who are being saved. So if you would be saved this morning, you need to trust God here. There is no other hope for you in the world but that Jesus came into the world to bear a cross in order to save you from your sins. I'm just going to tell you, you cannot believe in Jesus soon enough. Quickly enough. Even under this light this morning. So we pray that you would do that right now. Beloved, Paul... Once said, And I, when I came to you, decided to know nothing among you except, what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And in another place, He said, Far be it from me again to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that our hope this morning? Is that our commitment? Is that our life? I hope so. But either way, it can never be bad for you and me to slow down with Scripture and steep together in the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm excited about it. Let's pray together. This is your word. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray.